all that matters is. Wrong! This town deserves a better class of heavy metal podcast. I'm gonna give it. If you do not listen, then the hell with you. Walk through the gate of consciousness. Before the birth of time and space, there was only the void. But that was kinda boring. So the void contracted, dividing itself into the light and the darkness. And soon the darkness and the light did gather into many eternal rivers, flowing forever into the great sea. And these ineffable streams were called the gods. But they also got bored because you can only bowl so many perfect games before things start to feel a little stagnant. So the gods created man. They wanted something they could fuck with, but that also wouldn't talk back. Soon the gods saw that man was flawed and corrupt, and actually did a whole bunch of talking back. The world of man had lost itself in a great maze of possession, cruelty, covetousness, and online recipes that took way too long to get to the point. Seeing that man had turned from the great sea of understanding, from the light and the darkness, the gods brought forth onto the world a messenger. And lo, High atop the silver mountain, this great harbinger of the gods came down with fire. And when the people heard him, they did know that he had come to make them holy again. For the messenger so thundered and raged and racked that people were affrighted. They understood him little, his message being too great. And the gods did grow angry with man. They had sent the people a message in the form of one of their own, a celestial avatar who towered over man at a colossal height of five feet three inches. Wait, five foot three? The gods sent a messenger to deliver their immutable word to man, and they picked a guy who was five foot three. They they sent him with a to Earth with like a stool or ladder or something because. Seems like he'd have to do a lot of shouting over people, which isn't really ideal for persuasive speaking engagements. I gotta say, this one's kind of on the gods. Like, you might have a great message, but if I can't make eye contact with your messenger because I'm sitting behind a lady with an updo or like a cosplay Abe Lincoln, that's a you problem, gods. Not a me problem. And speaking of me problems, welcome to And Volume For All, a deeply reverent and lovingly irreverent exploration of the history, philosophy, and future of the greatest music in the world, heavy metal. I am your hostess, Cupcake Quinn, and today, and probably a lot of days in the near future, I am talking about the tiny man with the gigantic legacy, the Muggsy Bogues of heavy metal, the mighty and diminutive Ronnie James Dio. Thank you 
to everyone for the amazing responses to our heavy metal vocal series. I am allergic on like a genetic level to any and all forms of proselytizing. So I wasn't looking to convert anyone. I just wanted to provide opportunities for any listeners who might be interested in getting super frickin' brutal. So thanks to everyone who called Shotgun or even rode bitch with me down this highway to harsh. And if none of that really landed for you, that's cool too. I hope that I at least offered a better understanding of, or at least appreciation for, the many various iterations of what evil lurks in the throats of men. As I say frequently on this podcast and whenever cornered by a back-alley gang of underprivileged tweens who've generously offered to leave me either with the contents of my wallet or my spleen, but definitely not both, I consider myself an advocate for heavy metal. The word is butter, my friends, and I want to spread the word. And the be- what a strange little person I've become. Have you noticed that? I've noticed that. And the best way to disseminate this message of rad tidings to the people is through a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or... So if you haven't done that yet, could you? It really helps. And I'd owe you a lot. Like one of my kids or something. I'll start making more right now. However one does that. Again, I'm not trying to make of the world a mosh-filled pit. I just want to let the people know that the volume, it is for all. And there's more of it out there than just imagined dragons. But now, you beautiful mother punchers, you bastards of reality, it's time we turned our attention to a man who made something of a habit out of imagining dragons, the stentorious RJD. I know I started this series with some light-hearted ribbing on the subject of Dio's less-than-substantial physical stature, but I want to assure you, dear listeners, that one, this won't just be a three-part series of dumb jokes about Dio's height, because it could easily be a four-parter. There's tons of material out there about Ronnie James Dio, his life, and his illustrious career, even if it's a little short on details. Short. On deed, it's going to be a lot of that. So just, I don't know, try to find it charming or something. That's my advice. And two, oh, I forgot this was a list. Two, I believe that the fact that Ronnie James Dio was a literal head shorter than almost all of his contemporaries tells us something about the unlikely nature of his legacy as one of the greatest frontmen in the history of the genre. There aren't many figures in the story of heavy metal more significant than Ronnie James Dio, not only for his sprawling body of work or its influence on the music and musicians that followed in his wake, but also for his arguably unrivaled talent as a vocalist, his craft as a lyricist, and the staggering scope of the fantastical and philosophical imagination that he evinced through his poetry. Dio was an outstanding, top-shelf musician who couldn't actually reach the top shelf even if he was outstanding on a chair. A ticking time bomb. A ticking fucking time bomb. And while I hope to continue finding new and exponentially stupider ways to describe how easily one might look over Ronnie James Dio, I also want to make the more serious point that one of the reasons the former frontman for Elf Rainbow and Black Sabbath remains to this day such an emblematic figure in heavy metal culture 
is because for the entirety of his life and truly exceptional career, Ronnie James Dio was both figuratively and literally overlooked. So let's get to it. For those of you who don't know, I was born on the second day of the first month in the year 1980. Please don't send gifts. Cash is fine. But that means that by the time I transitioned out of listening to whatever the 80s equivalent of Baby Shark was and into metal, Dio's work with Rainbow and Black Sabbath was largely over. I grew up knowing him as a solo artist in the 80s. I bought the CDs Holy Diver and Last in Line just about the time everyone in my Pacific Northwest middle school started wearing jinkos and flannels and stopped caring for the most part about hygiene. At that point in time, music that unironically explored the darker moral aspects of the cosmos and... Cosmos? I'm the cosmos with the mostess. Thanks, America. At that point in time, music that unironically explored the darker moral aspects of the cosmos and humanity's uncomfortable location within it might as well have been aha. For me and for my generation, Ronnie James Dio was never cool. He always seemed like an anachronism. He was 70s rock in the 80s and 80s butt metal in the 90s. By the time the 21st century rolled around, I had largely forgotten about those solo records that were once the soundtrack to a really sad, shitty coming-of-age movie that I was trapped in. And I wasn't alone. In 1983, Holy Diver was a multi-platinum record. A year later, The Last in Line went platinum as well, but in 1985... Sacred Heart became Dio's final gold record as a solo artist, selling over 500,000 copies, and nothing after that even managed to break 75,000 in the U.S. Now, he did have something of a renaissance, courtesy of Tenacious D, in 2001, and I'll get into that in, like, April of 2029, probably. But even then, it was a nostalgic curiosity from another time. The lyrics to the song written about him were literally, Dio, you're too old to rock. No more rocking for you. We're taking you to a home, but we will sing a song about you. It sort of canonized Dio as a joke in pop culture. Again, an anachronism, this idea located outside of its proper chronological context. And in the larger landscape of popular culture, that's how Dio's career ended, getting name-checked by a famous comedian's funny rock band. I think that there has since been a different end to the story, but as I said before, we're not there yet. April 2029. Synchronize your swatches. Ronnie James Dio being overlooked and underappreciated was nothing new. In fact, that's really how the utterly uncanny career he carved out for himself as a titan of heavy metal began. His introduction to the genre proper began in the 80s, when he was given the less than enviable task of replacing one of the most beloved, recognizable, and consequential lead singers in what was the most important act in the formation of heavy metal, Black Sabbath. And before that, in 1974, when Richie Blackmore left one of the other most important bands in the formation of heavy metal, Deep Purple, who else would step in to become the lead singer of Blackmore's second project but Ronnie James Dio? I'm just gravely never joined Blue Cheer because the human body can only take so much LSD and heroin, and Dio only had about half a human body. 
At seemingly every turn in his career, Ronnie James Dio came off the bench to give the starters a rest, pulled down a triple-double, hit a pair of game-winning free throws, and most of the fans were still talking about how they missed the guy the team traded for him. And no, I don't know why in choosing a sports metaphor to describe the career of a 5-foot-3-inch man I went with basketball, but that's just what you do when your soul is an ocean of masochistic self-loathing. Dio was, and to a large extent still is, the quintessential underdog. The other guy in Black Sabbath, the off-brand Alice Cooper, the patron saint of beta NPCs and romantic subplot characters in which the leading couple's two ugly friends fall in love. But what I would like to argue with this series is that that secondary, junior varsity nature of Dio's popular persona, the overlooked, underappreciated otherness of the man, is the very reason why he has come to personify and even deify the culture and community of heavy metal itself. And I intend to explain that fully when we come back. Wait, 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 stop, 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 stop. What the hell was that? Yeah, I know we're going into the break, which is where I typically play something awesome that gets me hyped for the next thing. No, no, I don't think that was awesome. That was like some Earth Angel doo-wop shit that makes me want to drive out to make out points so I can neck with Betty Jenkins in the backseat of my dad's Buick Roadmaster. There is no Betty Jenkins. I just made that name up. This episode is about Ronnie James Dio. We should go into the break with, like, Heaven and Hell or Stargaze or something badass. What, what is that shit CD you just played? I know people say it's a superior audio format, but that's not the point. Just let me see it. Ronnie and the Red Caps. That's Ronnie James Dio? You're saying the Ronnie of Ronnie and the Red Caps is Ronnie James Dio. I don't drive a Buick Roadmaster. I just picked a random car from the 50s. I don't even have a dad. I'm not sure why this is confusing you. Okay, just just give me a second. Just give me a second, okay? All right. Born in Cortland, New York, 1957. Billy DeWolf, Nick Pantis, Tom Rogers, and Ronnie Dio. Yeah, but that could be any number of teenagers who just happened to be from Dio's hometown and were trying to break into the music industry at roughly the same time. I bet back then, it was a much more common name. No, not Betty Jenkins. Ronnie, J listen. Okay, listen, listen. Can you just play a different Dio song into the break? Oh, you, you can. Because you're just me pretending to be the voice of a muffled in-studio producer. Oh, ho, ho. what an excellent day for a holy deep dive. When we come back.
James Patavona was born in Portsmouth, New Hampshire in 1942, which to me is pretty incredible. Think about that. 1942. When we consider Dio's contemporaries, we think of names like Ozzy Osbourne, Rob Halliford, or fellow point guard on Team Metal, Bruce Dickinson. But all of those guys were younger than Dio, Ozzy by six years, Halliford by nine, and Dickinson by 16. So in addition to being English, all of those chaps were part of a later generation, literally. Ozzy, Halliford, and Dickinson were all baby boomers, the generation that was born after the war because their parents came home from killing Nazis in WW2 and just wanted to fuck. Dio, however, was born at the tail end of what is known ironically, in his case, as the silent generation, all of whom grew up to be either librarians or monks. My point about the age difference, not about monks, is that Dio was anywhere from five to ten years older than most of the big names that he was making music with in the 70s and the 80s. And I think that gap becomes significant later on for a few reasons. But again, we're not there yet. Don't rush me, Nancy. Two other significant factors in Dio's early life were that he was born into a military family who happened to be of Italian descent, which is convenient, as Dio also happened to be Italian. So in the late 40s, the Padavona family moved to Cortland, New York, which was originally part of a two million acre tract of land set aside for the military in central New York. Creatively named the Central New York Military Tract, the land was designated as compensation for New Yorkers who fought as soldiers in the Revolutionary War. So Dio didn't just grow up with a father in the military. His father, Patrick Patavona, was from Cortland in the military and moved his family back to Cortland where fucking everyone was in the military for multiple generations. Good use of that space by the U.S. government, too, because it's not like anyone was living there already. On the map, there's this tiny little square labeled Onondaga Reservation. So I guess that Onondaga guy must have called ahead. Anyway, I doubt it's a really sad story. So back to Ronnie James Dio. In a 2008 interview with Metal Hammer's Dave Ling, who, if you put his two names together, sounds like a type of bird. I'm just giving you a minute to, to try that. See? Dio described Cortland as a small town with a great small town atmosphere. You didn't have to lock your front door. Pedophilia was a word that was impossible to spell, and no one knew what it meant. Okay, well, nobody really asked about that or even implied it, but good to know. On the topic of his family, who definitely didn't molest him, Dio offered, Nothing happened to bruise my psyche. My family came from farm stock. Ah, now I understand the caveat. Thank you. And while he didn't come from a family of musicians, beginning at age five, his father required Ronnie to dedicate three hours a day to practicing the trumpet and eventually the French horn, which is just like a normal horn that won't play if you ask it to in English. But according to Revolver magazine, Dio claimed that those many hours of practice taught him the breath control techniques he would later use as a vocalist to produce such powerful sounds. So while the martial dedication to the trumpet that Papa Padavona imposed on his son gave Padawan Padavona a foundation in the craft of music, it was that other significant factor of his early life that provided him with a passion for it, namely being Italian. In that same interview with the red-breasted Northern Daveling from 2008, Dio said this of Cortland, New York, 
Due to Italian culture, music was embedded in the town. I grew up listening to a lot of opera, which really affected my singing style. Specifically, Dio cited the work of American tenor and movie white dwarf Mario Lanza. Something of a side note here, Dio's given name of Padavona is, as it turns out, incredibly rare. There are only like 19 people in the world with that name, 15 of them in the United States and the remainder in Russia and Kazakhstan. There's also one dude in Canada with that name, which seems dubious considering the Canadian penchant for abject dishonesty. It's a country of lies built by liars, people. So my suspicion is that some Weisenheimer at Ellis Island heard the much more common Italian name of Padovano for someone who came from the Italian city of Padua, and as an unrepentant jumble enthusiast, swapped the final A and O in order to create the utterly meaningless name of Padovona. The entire point is moot because young Ronnie eventually dropped the name Padovona like a one-armed wide receiver and adopted the now-famous pseudonym of Dio upon the formation of his high school band, The Vegas Kings. I can only imagine Las Vegas was reluctant to accept a teenage monarch from a distant land, but England's been doing it for centuries and it worked out okay for her. All keen-eared theologian philologists who make up a surprisingly large portion of my listenership will note that Dio in Italian is the word for God. But the artist formerly known as Padovona actually took the name from a New York City mob boss named Giovanni Ignazio Diogardi, more commonly known as Johnny Dio, which was probably just an easier name to scream while your bullet-ridden body is being buried alive in a remote cornfield upstate. But much like Johnny Dio's enemies and probably a good number of his friends, the name Vegas Kings didn't last for long and soon became Ronnie and the Rumblers, who took their name from the Dwayne Eddy song Rumble, made re-famous by another notable Italian-American artist in his 1996 postmodern magnum opus, Pulp Fiction. Ronnie and the Rumblers absolutely dominated the Cortland High School dance circuit and soon became the soundtrack to clandestine dry humping at every gym and cafetorium in lower, middle, central, upper New York State. In fact, they became so popular that just a year later in 1958, they landed the gig of all gigs for a young and upcoming band in none other than New York City. Wait, no, sorry. I misread that. In none other than Johnson City New York. Still pretty big. 
But the gig promoter was what was referred to at the time as a total pussy and feared the name Rumblers might encourage violence among what we can only assume were the dangerously bored Utes of Johnson City. So Ronnie and the Rumblers, formerly known as the Vegas Kings, led by Ronnie Dio, formerly known as Ronnie Padavona, formerly known as Padavano, became Ronnie and the Red Caps. See the gal with the red dress on. She can burn land all night long. Hey, hey. Oh, what I say. Yeah, what I say. Oh, I wanna know. See the gal with What I'd Say by Ronnie and the Redcaps. And I gotta say, that shit just makes me wanna fucking fight. So, with What I'd Say, the instrumental pugilism of Conquest, and the surprisingly sentimental ballad of An Angel is Missing, these four blood-drenched sadists from central New York State, known as much for the trail of pustulant corpses left in their wake as the malevolent melodies with which they commanded their gang of grisly myrmidons, set upon the unsuspecting innocence of the world, for in the year of 1960, the Stygian nightmare known as Ronnie and the Red Caps once again changed their name. Really? Changed their name? Again? To what? <laughs> Ronnie and the Prophets. <sighs> All right. Well, at least Dio kept his name. <laughs> he went back to Patavona? <laughs> Betty Jenkins. My God, let it go, me. Well, for all of you who started out this episode thinking, man, I hope he talks a lot about names, you're welcome. So the newly christened Ronnie and the Prophets continued to gain popularity, playing frat parties until in 1962, Atlantic Records heard the band and thought there might be an audience for them beyond future Reagan Democrats with a knack for coercive sexual encounters, signing a band called Ronnie Dio and the Prophets, who I'll just assume are the same guys at this point, to record a cover of the 1960 hit single by Jesse Hill, the Oop-Oop-Pop. Padu, the oopapadu, oopapadu, the oopapadu. Ah, oh, that was the reservation, the oopapadu reservation. Was it? You know what? It doesn't matter. But before Atlantic decided to take a chance on Ronnie's red-rumbling prophets of Padua, as the ever-obedient son, Dio adhered to his parents' wishes, despite his vision of a musical future, and went into pharmacology at the University of Buffalo. Buffalo! Thank you, Greg. Oh my god, I had no idea he was still sitting in there. But somewhere inside, Dio must have known there was no money in pharmaceuticals. And once he had a record contract, there didn't seem to be much reason to continue. There's a story that he was offered a scholarship to Juilliard to play the trumpet and turned it down, but the only place that I found that information was on Wikipedia and a defunct blog off of the Internet Archive, some Canadian guy named Padavona, so you know that's horseshit. So it's at this point that things begin to accelerate. Ronnie and the Prophets start playing clubs and release a bunch of singles, which I'm not going to play because, frankly, it all sounds exactly like the stuff you've already heard. Like most artists... The early part of Dio's career was a lot of emulation, 
they recorded a ton of covers and songs that feel like covers, even though they're technically originals. Nothing from this period is in any way unique or innovative. It's just some teenagers playing the music that they like or is popular or what they think people will want to hear. Ain't nothing wrong with that. This is not the reason I'm here. The true spark of genius doesn't start to appear in Dio's work until we get to the 70s, so I'm going to do my best to get us there as fast as possible. Though I do have to mention that the band released a live album in 1962 called Dio at Domino's, which is kind of hilarious because it makes you think of Ronnie James Dio doing a live set at a mediocre pizza chain, which is not really what happened. It's exactly what happened. I know it wasn't 80s Dio screaming don't talk to strangers as actual strangers just tried to enjoy their cheesy breadsticks, but now you're probably picturing that scenario, and I just want to say, please leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pot picks. But much like Satan, voiced by a young Mick Jagger in 1967, Ronnie and the Prophets saw it was a time for a change. Of the band's name. Again. However... Oh, however, however, unlike the last 87 times. This is actually what my high school graduation presentation was like. Dear students of 1998, we have been through tumultuous times. Okay, VFSI. However, unlike the last 87 times, this reinvention actually has an effect on the future of heavy metal, which is why we're all here. We just want what's best for you, metal. We just want what's best. In 2001, former Prophets guitarist and a man whose name is the universe's benevolent grace shone on this podcast, Dick Buttoff, which I'm just going to repeat right now. Dick Buttoff explained how Ronnie and the Prophets transformed into the Electric Elves. Nicky, Nick Pantis, was 5'3 and skinnier than Ronnie. Nicky used to wear beetle boots, and with the weather being what it is in Cortland, his shoes got wet a lot. The toes of his beetle boots curled up and made him look like an elf. I used to refer to them as the Electric Elves as a joke, but they actually decided to use the name, said Dick Bodoff. Of the transition, former Electric Elves guitarist and keyboardist Doug Thaler, whose parents really stunk it up in the funny name department, said, There was never really an end to the Prophets or a beginning to the Electric Elves. Until the crash in 1968, we began pushing the Electric Elves in place of Ronnie Dio and the Prophets. Now, if like me, you're both wondering and dreading what Until the Crash refers to, also like me, you will not be surprised to learn that on February 12th, 1968, members of the newly christened Electric Elves were involved in a fatal car accident that took the life of guitarist Nick Pantis and left Ronnie James Dio with over 150 stitches in his head and face after going through the windshield of said car. Thaler then explained that Dio put the band back together later that year, and though he couldn't rejoin, he did manage to catch one of their gigs in his hometown of Rome, New York, while still in a full body cast from the accident. Which ought to tell you everything you need to know about just how horrific that crash was and that the music venues of Rome, New York were fully ADA compliant. As Dio and his band attempted to move through the tragedy, they returned to seemingly the only thing that ever gave them a sense of control over the chaos of their lives and the careers that they had made in an equally chaotic industry as the world began its descent into the chaos of the late 60s and early 70s. The Electric Elves soon became just the Elves, 
and shortly after, the very short band, with the increasingly short name, decided that eight letters was just too many and transformed one final time into the act the world would come to know as Elf. So, in 1972, after a decade and a half of playing high school prom venues in Cortland, New York, frat houses and fast food franchises across New York State and ultimately small to mid-sized clubs around the United States, Ronnie and the Vegas-rumbling red-capped prophet kings of electric elves, regular elves, and then just one single solitary elf got lucky. They managed to score an audition for Columbia Records playing a full set at a tiny venue in their home state of New York. On a whim, two men wandered into the club to see what was playing that night. They were musicians. One of them was a bassist named Roger, the other a drummer named Ian. By their own admissions, Roger and Ian thought that the show might be some kind of circus act. The singer was five foot three. The guitarist was five feet even. The drummer was sitting down, so it was hard to tell, but it probably didn't help. And, of course, they called themselves Elf. Anyone would be forgiven for thinking that the band was a novelty act, as Ian and Roger did. But then, Elf started their set and the two musicians sitting at the back of the house immediately knew that they were watching something, and specifically, someone, like they had never seen before. Roger Glover and Ian Pace also knew a little something about rock and roll, because in 1972, they comprised the rhythm section of one of the biggest, most successful, and most important rock bands in the entire world, Deep Purple. And volume for all, we are going to get all up in Elf's discography, how they ended up opening for Deep Purple, and we get to reacquaint ourselves with one of the crankiest sourpuss Deborah Downers in the history of heavy metal, the man who would conjure the rainbow out of the dark, Richie Blackmore. Oh, geez, I cannot wait to fuck around and find out about Richie Blackmore. <sighs> He's gonna be so mad at us. 
on the next. And volume for all.